And the more you see of your own sins, the more blown away you are at uh, the lavish love and mercy and grace of God. We've been looking at uh, reconciliation and dealing with uh, some of the sins that have come between uh, camps. If you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19, we're going to finish off the chapter and go up into verse 2 of chapter 20, beginning to read at verse 40. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king's a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king, therefore we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. There happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, and he blew a trumpet and said, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, your command is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Help us to take every word seriously, to dig deeply into your word, to cherish it, and to be sanctified by it. We pray for your anointing on the preaching and upon the hearing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, David has been working very diligently in this chapter on reconciling uh, the tribes to himself and in the previous verses it sure looked like he was successful uh, it's um, in the past what was it four sermons we have seen some wonderful peacemaking efforts that David engaged in and uh, yet now an angry fight blows it all up and we're back to where we started uh, with another rebellion and we wonder why you know we were doing so well now we're back to fighting again and this paragraph, I think, gives great lessons on some of the most common obstacles to reconciliation. I am convinced that too frequently what we call peace is not really peace. You know, it's a truce. It's a temporary ceasing of hostilities. And that's good as far as it goes. Obviously, you can't have peace if you haven't put off hostilities. But there's a lot more to peace than that. Peace involves putting off the bad behavior, putting on the graces of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, verse 14, Paul defines peace this way. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So hostilities have been put off. Christ and his graces have been put on, and the result is that there is no longer any separation. The two have been made one. Now, if the two are not, the two hostile parties have not been made one, we do not yet have the kind of peace 
that God calls us to have. We might have a cessation of hostilities, but it's not genuine reconciliation. We've just agreed not to fight for a while. In a sermon on Ephesians, uh, Ray Steadman said, what we call peace among nations never lasts because it isn't really peace. It isn't oneness at all. It's only a weariness with warfare, an agreement to stop it for a while until we can all recuperate and rearm. Then it breaks out all over again because nothing is ever settled. Does that sound familiar? Sure does to me. <laughs> and not just in national politics, it sounds familiar to me in every area of life. Now some people think, if only I could get rid of the irritations in my family, everything would be hunky-dory. If only we could get rid of some of the things that irritate me in this church, this would be a great church. Okay, I uh, don't remember where I read it, but there was um, a monk, I don't know if it was a thousand years ago or something like that, but there was a monk who... Uh, always seemed to get into tussles with uh, his fellow monks and would get furious. He had a bad temper. And, of course, it was always the other monks' fault. And they finally sent him off for several months of solitude. And while he was enjoying this solitude, uh, he reached over to the table to get the pitcher and pour himself a glass of water. And he accidentally knocked the pitcher off onto the ground. And he went and filled it up, and in the filling of, of it up, he dropped the pitcher a second time, and he just flew into a rage. He was, but there was nobody to blame. <laughs> he was the only one there, and he realized all of a sudden it wasn't the irritations per se, it wasn't other people's fault. He had brought this problem with him right into that solitary cell. And it was a, a situation where there was something inside of him that Satan was taking uh, advantage of. And so today we're going to be looking at the irritations. There's something we can learn from those. We're going to be looking at the flesh, at the world, at the devil, and we're going to see how we can contribute to peace breaking, but also how even when the other party has not been doing the things that they should for peacemaking, how we can help uh, with peacemaking even if they've been blowing it on every level. Now, before we get to verse 40, I do want to look at a couple of things from the context. The spirit of rebellion that's mentioned in point A is an inward disposition that magnifies the irritations enormously. The irritations were already there, but they probably would not have broken the peace if at least this element was absent. Okay, look at chapter 20, verse 1. And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, and he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. Now I want you to notice that God characterizes Sheba as a, re a rebel before any rebellion had broken out. He already had the disposition of being a rebel, and previously we saw that Absalom had a rebel's heart long years before any actual rebellion uh, in the nation broke out. And Satan was using Absalom to spread this rebellion throughout Israel. The rebellion was so pervasive, all it took to manifest itself uh, was uh, a leader to coalesce these rebels. Now here's the point for today's, uh, the purposes of today's sermon. Re when a rebel heart is not changed, the most that you can hope for is a truce, 
okay, is a temporary ceasefire. And even then, it's so easy for Satan to quickly stir things up again because that rebel heart has never been dealt with. A spirit of rebellion hangs on a number of things. It hangs on worldview issues, which means our thinking. It hangs on heart issues, demonic issues. And I want to focus in on the demonic because most people tend to ignore that. If the rebel Satan and his demons can find a rebel heart, they are instantly drawn to that heart just like magnets. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why you'll, you'll notice probably over your life that you can have teenagers come into a room and they may not know each other, but within minutes, if you've got two rebels, they seem to be attracted to each other just like magnets, okay? Anytime we allow inward rebellion to be unconfessed, it gives the demonic a foothold in our lives, always. And where rebellion is, we have no power to resist the wicked one, and I'll prove that in a moment. But when we are resisting things like the GLBTQ bill that is out there, we don't want to resist it as rebels. We want to resist it as the loyal opposition, giving uh, helpful uh, uh, resistance to what's going on, not uh, being, you know, uh, furious or, or um, with angry tirades. We want to have respect to authority. Lawful resistance to tyranny is not dangerous, but civil rebellion is. The attitudes involved in civil rebellion open up citizens to demonic influence. Uh, a wife's rebellion to her husband opens up her to uh, uh, demonic influence. Same with children when they rebel against their parents. Same with church members when they rebel against uh, church authority. So let me spend a little bit of time on this concept. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23 says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now, everybody knows if you get involved in witchcraft, you're going to be opening yourself up to the demonic. That's pretty clear. But this is, this is saying that rebellion does so just as much. Rebellion and witchcraft are really in the same grouping of sins. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Next verse. Proverbs 17, verse 11 says, An evil man seeks only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Now the word messenger could be translated as angel, and that's exactly the way that the Jewish translation of the Old Testament uh, translates it as evil angel. Now, demons are fallen angels. They are cruel messengers or cruel angels. They are evil angels. Those are all synonyms. And so Matthew Henry rightly says about that verse and about this rebellious and stubborn person, quote, Satan, the angel of death, shall be let loose upon him and the messengers of Satan. In other words, when we've got a rebellious spirit, we open ourselves up to demonic influence. If demons see rebellion, they are drawn to it like a magnet. They're sent by Satan to take advantage of that. Well, what happens then? Well, once demons get a, a legal stronghold or a legal ground in our lives uh, through rebellion, we lose the Holy Spirit's discernment and we begin to be spiritually blind. We fail to look at life as God sees life. The discernment that rebels have, you know, many times may be a discernment of demonic messengers. And so Ezekiel 12, verse 2 says this, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see but does not see 
and ears to hear, but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Why can't they see? He says, for, or because, they're a rebellious house. One expositor said, in the above verse, it is important to notice how it also emphasizes that this rebellious house has eyes, but cannot see. Rebellion allows the God of this world, which is Satan, who works through his network of demonic spirits to blind our spiritual eyes. When our spiritual eyesight is blinded, our discernment suffers greatly. This is a dangerous position for anyone to be in. So let's trace through where we've been so far. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And actually, if you look it up in the Hebrew, it's a lot stronger. There is no as in there. It says rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Okay? It is, it is imitating uh, the devil. And when this rebellion is not immediately confessed, as Samuel begged King Saul to do, then an evil messenger from Satan can be sent against us just like it was sent against King Saul. You know, it was right after his rebellion that, that he opened himself up for this demonic to begin influencing him. And that's what Proverbs 17, verse 11 guarantees. This then, in turn, leads to lack of discernment. Now, all of that is to say that until a spirit of rebellion is dealt with, peacemaking is only going to amount to truces, temporary ceasefires. Many pastors spend all their time putting out fire. They put out a fire over here, and they get that dealt with, and another one springs up over there. Uh, when there are rebel hearts, Satan, all he has to do is just barely touch them, and he can get things rousing up uh, back and forth. A rebel like Sheba can appeal to that rebel spirit in other people's lives. In fact, it's a weird thing. People who have this spirit of rebellion seem to recognize others with the same spirit and to have a connection with them almost immediately. And that rebel spirit will focus in on all of the irritations of life and be totally unable to see the blessings in life. Why can't they see the blessings of life? Well, Ezekiel 12, 2 says that a rebellious people, even if they have spiritual eyes, will not be able to see with them clearly. You know, there's a lot of scriptures along those lines. 2 Peter 1 says that this can be true of believers uh, who become, quote, short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. So that's the first major obstacle, a spirit of rebellion. And let's take a look at uh, some of the irritations that this spirit uh, focused Sheba upon, and there were plenty of them. Uh, point B uh, gives a little bit of a listing there. We saw in an earlier sermon that David's ungodly weeping could have produced irritation very easily. That very temporary self-pity and selfishness could have irritated Sheba, even though Sheba had the same uh, selfishness. His was much more permanent and enduring. But we tend to be blind to our own sins to focus on the sins of others. Also, David had not been able to deal with every false rumor and slander that Absalom had spread about him. And so these irritations could have been going back all the way back to chapter 15 on why David was not a great king. Irritations don't have to be based on truth. They can be based on gossip. But irritations can be based on faults, genuine faults as well. Every leader has got his faults, okay? Whether it's a, a, a husband or a father or a pastor or a civil officer, every leader has their faults, and those faults can lead to irritations. And if there's a spirit of rebellion that's poisoning the vision, it can lead to anger and rejection of that leader. Genuine hurts. 
those can lead to rebellion. They had already experienced the loss of 40,000 soldiers, 20,000 by the sword, more than 20,000 destroyed in the forest. We're not told exactly how uh, they were destroyed. And it would have been very easy for those who had lost uh, these loved ones to be bitter against David, even though David wasn't the one who started this. Uh, David was the one who was the victim. But the point is that there could have been any number of irritations that Sheba could have appealed to. It is impossible for any group of people to exist for any length of time without some potential irritations arising. And if you're quick to latch onto them, it's an indication there's something inside that's not going right. It's not the irritations per se that are the problem. Now, I'm not going to cover points C through E in detail, but do look at verse 40. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. Now there are three potential irritations here. Why didn't David wait for the rest of the elders to show up at the Jordan River? And their questioning seems to imply that David needed their permission to do so. It was kind of a controlling spirit. Though the text doesn't say so, taking the young Chimham across the river with him may have aroused some suspicions, wondering about this favoritism. What has Chimham done that makes him so special? You know, just because his dad is rich and his dad has helped out David doesn't mean Chimham should be giving these special favors. So that could have aroused some envy. And verse 40 indicates that there may have been a disproportionate representation from Judah. But whatever the irritations were, they led to venting in anger. And as we read through verses 41 through 43, I want you to notice how anger fuels more anger, which in turn inflames even more anger. There are no soft answers here to turn away wrath. There are self-justifying answers. There are accusatory answers, and it gets a word fight going. So let's begin reading at verse 41. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brother and the men of Judah stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king's a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? Now they're feeling accused of favoritism, but it doesn't help that they're claiming special rights to him, that they, they, they have a right to be. Uh, you know, closer to David than the others because, uh, you know, hey, he's, um, he's um, uh, their, their relative. So out of one side of their mouth, they're denying what they're saying. Out of the other side, they're kind of affirming it. Verse 43, And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you, do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now, we aren't told what those fiercer words were, but it's pretty clear that last phrase indicates things were beginning to get out of control. So there's anger, anger, even greater anger, and anger that is not under control is destructive to the process of reconciliation. Anger makes people irrational. Now, to us, when we read this, it seems pretty childish pretty petty. I mean, to me, it seems extremely childish, extremely petty, this argument that's going back and forth. But you know what? When you are angry, you don't care how you sound. Uh, people who are looking on look at you and think, whoa, this, this guy's got a little bit of childishness uh, in him. You don't care how you sound. You don't care how your words are going to hurt, right? 
You just let your feelings gush, and you use words like swords. So it's no wonder to me that David wrote Psalm 37 on this trip, which admonishes us, cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it only causes harm. And it caused great harm as we move into chapter 20. Will Rogers once said, people who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. Okay? And there is no good landing from this kind of an argument. Even if the rebellion under Sheba did not happen, there still would have been wounding. There still would have been hurts in each other's lives. And here's the problem. They were not attacking the problem. They were attacking each other uh, with these words, which is a form of heart murder and of verbal murder. Scripture makes it very clear that it's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. And later I'm going to be giving you some tips on how to avoid that. But many scholars have pointed out that there were prejudices between the North and the South long before this day, going all the way back to the time of the judges. There was a competition. There was a a tendency for them to be a little bit hostile and suspicious of each other. And the argument on this day, commentators believe, spawned even further animosity. And eventually, these differences led to a rift between the North and the South uh, under Rehoboam. It's so easy to allow irritations to make us angry. Uh, One of the sayings that I like from my grandma's uh, generation was, anger is just one letter different from danger. Anger is just one letter short of danger. So a spirit of rebellion, that's the first problem. Unresolved anger is the second And both problems existed before this explosion. That's so important to understand. Both those problems existed before this explosion. C.S. Lewis once said, Surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. If there are rats in a cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me ill-tempered. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. So you got rats in your cellar if you fly off the handle. That's what he's in effect saying. And until those rats are exterminated so that they no longer exist in the dark, they keep appearing every time an irritation happens. And the problem is not the irritation. The irritation is just flipping on the lights. You go into your cellar and you see the rats there, okay? The irritation didn't create the rats. They were always there, right? The irritation is a providential testing in your life where God is testing your cellar, testing your heart to see if there are any rats there. And if they come out, Okay, it's not the fault of the lights, okay? It's the fault. If you're going shooting out the lights, ah, I can't stand these rats, we're going to get rid of the lights, you're being very, very foolish. So God's grace must flush out the rebellion and anger at the heart level or the rats will always be there. So we got a spirit of rebellion and anger. Those are two very wretched rats, very wretched enemies. But there is one more horrible rat in this passage, our last point shows an even deeper enemy that fuels both rebellion and anger, and it's the great enemy, pride. And I want to show you 11 things that happened in this passage that would have been extremely hard for pride to take. 
And instead of allowing these things to crucify their pride, which they could have done, uh, they allowed these things to fuel the anger and the rebellion. The rat of pride must be dealt with, not simply the irritations that expose it. So does that make sense? So we're, we're talking about the deeper heart issues. Well, let's look at each of the irritations. First is feeling slighted and feeling left out of the decision-making process. Look at verse 41. Just then, and the just then is just as they got to Gilgal, just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? Now, there are two things that point A highlights as potential hits to their pride, and the first is that David hadn't waited for them at the, the Jordan. They really had to hustle to catch up to the first group uh, up at Gilgal. And uh, if you look at the map in your outlines there, you'll notice I've put uh, the, the, the roads are in red, and then I've put their route in a blue arrow. So they had to travel two miles from the Jordan River, two miles west, and then 16 miles south to catch up to them. And if you've ever been late to something that you are really interested and uh, is important to you, you want to get to, you know how those frustrations can rise internally, right? These guys had probably worked up a sweat. They had crosswords for themselves. Can't believe I did this. And why did you guys hold us up? They're arguing amongst each other. They've got frustrations uh, that have made them kind of flustered for being late. And uh, maybe some of you have kicked the proverbial flat tire and you're in a foul mood because that flat tire has made you late to some party that you really wanted to go to. Being late is never fun. So that in itself had the potential for making them irritated, uh, frustrated with David and the men. But the second thing is added to it. The word stolen implies that the king was being taken away without their permission. Now some translate it as kidnapped. But either way, uh, they are irritated that the others had proceeded without their permission. Now, that's not an entirely accurate statement. It's not a fair statement because uh, they had indeed already given their permission uh, because in verse 43, they themselves admit, we're the first ones to welcome him to be to the king. Okay, so we're not being entirely uh, fair here. David had the permission. They had voted on it. Already those negotiations had taken place, and we also know that from the, the, the previous uh, verses in this chapter, there was a lot of discussions and meeting people and talking through issues. They were waiting at the Jordan River uh, for a long time for these other guys to, to arrive. And so they were probably thinking, I don't know if these guys are ever going to arrive. Uh, maybe we better move on. Um, so I'm sure both sides had their frustrations. The Sheba group felt slighted that they hadn't waited longer, perhaps had been dismissed. For sure, the word stolen indicates they thought David should have traveled on, uh, should not have traveled on without their permission. That's their perspective. And David probably felt, hey, I already got their, their permission, and hey, I'm the king. Why do I need permission to go across the Jordan back to my house? Come on, guys. So you can see there's plenty of fodder here to get an angry dispute uh, started up. But in any case, a soft answer by David's group could have avoided a disaster. They should have noticed that these guys were hot and bothered, that they had missed the show. And having noticed that they were flustered, they could have apologized and ex explained why they went on. You know, please forgive us. You know, we didn't intend to slight you, 
But, you know, after waiting for hours, we just thought you were providentially, uh, you know, hindered. But we're glad you're here, you know. A soft and a humble answer could have done a lot uh, to stop this uh, division. Likewise, the second group should have used words less likely to arouse anger. Okay, to imply that David needed their permission to cross the, the Jordan seems, you know, just a little bit unreasonable. To imply that they needed to wait more hours for them seems even more unreasonable. But I tell you, their inflammatory words seemed totally unreasonable. And that's point B, inflammatory words. Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away? Now, to accuse them of stealing or of kidnapping was a moral accusation. In fact, kidnapping carried the death penalty with it. So this was in highly inflammatory language that they were using. And it applies also, they're up to something. There is something weird going on here, this secrecy. You know, they're taking us away without our knowing it. And so there's suspicion being expressed. If they had simply asked, why didn't you guys wait for us? Then they could have talked about the, the why, the facts that, uh, you know, both sides were uh, 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 concerned about. It still might have made some touchy people a little bit angry, but less likely to do so. If they had said, you know, we feel bad that you guys left us behind, it would have been a little bit better, but best would have been, uh, sorry we're late to the party, and uh, moved on to have a friendly discussion. But since their questions were moral accusations of kidnapping and hiding something, the words were an attack that almost guaranteed a response of self-defense or of counterattack. And this is what gets so many arguments going bad into a downward spiral. They use words that are deliberately designed to hurt or to offend or to attack or to give moral blame. Those words could be name-calling. They could be throwing out psychological labels like, what do I do with this psychological label? It could just be hurtful words. You know, I hate you. You disgust me or something like that. Inflammatory words rarely solve any issues. Each of those inflammatory words is building a brick upon brick, building a wall between you and the other person. And it means that all inflammatory words need to be repented of because Ephesians 4.29 is quite clear. We'll read that in a moment. It's a clear violation. Inflammatory words designed to hurt are a clear violation of Ephesians 4.29. And verse 30 says they grieve the Holy Spirit. Why do they grieve the Holy Spirit? Because you are wounding deliberately. You are hurting a person whom God values and whom He loves. That's why it grieves the Holy Spirit. And they don't work anyway. They either tend to make the other person close down or leave or go on a counterattack against you. And so the more quickly we can repent of words designed to hurt, the better. They're obstructions to reconciliation. Let me read you um, in Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, which means building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children." 
and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So if we're to imitate Christ in the ways that I've just read there from Ephesians 4 through chapter 5, verse 2, we're not going to be throwing obstructions in the way of reconciliation. Paul also tells us to put off all untruthfulness. He wasn't just talking about the big fibs. He was talking about exaggeration as well. Exaggeration is a huge obstruction to peacemaking. And if you look at verse 41, you'll see two exaggerations. Starting in the middle of verse 41, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? Now, the leaders in verse 41 exaggerated in two ways. First of all, they labeled what what was being done, David going across the Jordan, as kidnapping, when it was really David's idea to go across in verse 38 anyway. And then second, they acted as if it was only Judah, the southern tribe that had taken David across the Jordan, when verse 40, God himself says that half of the army of the north was with them. So it wasn't a north versus a south thing. There were north and southerners who were taking David across the Jordan. So on both counts, they're engaged in exaggeration. And exaggeration is a major obstacle to reconciliation because it starts an argument over the truthfulness of irrelevant information rather than over the immediate problem that you were trying to solve. Why do you always leave the toilet lid up? Okay, or maybe it's the other way down, you know, leave it down. Uh, Why do you always do that? Well, what happens with an argument like that? You're no longer focused on why did you leave it up right now, which you could say, oh, I'm sorry, I should have put that down. Now you're arguing about the truthfulness of whether you always do it. You're not even arguing about this particular uh, inconsideration. You're, you're arguing about, you're, you're telling a lie about me. I don't always do this. And all of a sudden, you're way off on something that's utterly irrelevant to the immediate situation that you're facing. You never show me respect. Generally, we ought to avoid words like always, never, or labeling a person as if this is always the behavior that he's engaged in. Let me give you an example. It's better to say, son, that was clearly a lie, which deals with a very specific action that you're immediately confronting right now, rather than to say, son, you are a liar. It's a big difference between the two. Now, I know Ray Comfort loosely likes to use these general labelings and say, what does that make you? Makes you a liar. What does that make you? Makes you an adulterer. Well, I'm sorry, the Scripture says that All liars will have their part in the lake of fire. All liars. Which means Christians don't have the identity of a liar. Now, they may fall into specific examples of lying, like Abraham did, but they're putting off individual sins and growing in Christ. They're not putting off a lying nature. Okay? There's a big difference between their two. Their identity is as a saint in Christ, and they are becoming more and more conformed to him. So labels can be a form of exaggeration, and there's many, many other ways in which we can exaggerate, and when we exaggerate, the tendency is to attack the person rather than the individual sin. And by the way, when you're so labeled, it's hard to defend yourself. You feel kind of helpless. 
I mean, I can deal very easily with an accusation that I have engaged in a lie, and I can repent of that particular lie. But what do you do when a person says you're a liar? You can't do anything. You feel pretty helpless. I mean, I'm a liar. Okay, that's just my nature. What, what, what do you do with that? Uh, the label just sticks with you no matter what you do. So I'm trying to help you recognize key obstacles to reconciliation, and exaggeration is one of them. The fourth thing that could have raised the hackles of their pride was that they were being criticized in public. Okay, It's always harder to acknowledge your sin when you are being confronted publicly. Now, it doesn't excuse our pride. Our pride, should we should just be willing to crucify it no matter where uh, we're at. But here's the point. If your goal is to resolve you know, a specific given problem, you're making it harder for yourself when you confront that person in front of others. And so Scripture encourages us in Matthew 18 to confront a person privately, one-on-one. Our tactics of peacemaking need to be designed to ensure maximum success, and you are not going to have maximum success if you ignore or violate Matthew 18. Okay, we've shown how the Sheba crowd was not approaching the problem properly. Let's turn to verse 42 and show how David's crowd did not respond appropriately either. Uh, Basically, what was happening here is that uh, Satan was dangling some bait in front of them to try to get them angry, and they swallowed that bait hook, line, and sinker. They're playing right into Satan's hand. So verse 42 So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king's a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? Now on every level, this was designed to escalate the conflict rather than resolving the conflict. Rather than asking questions, trying to look at things from the other person's perspective, they blew it in four ways. They blew it, first of all, by getting angry. Okay, the other side's angry, now they're getting angry. And I admit, this is the easiest thing to do. I mean, this is the natural. It's just natural for our gut reaction is to get angry right back. But the problem is, now you've got not just one side who's not thinking very clearly and rationally. You've got both sides who are not thinking very clearly and rationally. And it makes it so much more difficult for any resolution to happen. So they took the bait by getting angry. Second... They let the other side define what has and hasn't happened. By answering because, they are implicitly giving credence to the accusation. Why did you do such and such? Well, because, you know, because uh, the king is our relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Okay? Now, why would they even answer a fallacious accusation that way when God himself says in verse 40 that it's a false accusation? See, it wasn't, it wasn't Judah who was taking them away. It was Judah and half the army of, uh, of Israel. So it's not a north versus south issue like Sheba is trying to make it out to be, but they bite on that accusation anyway. Why? Well, it's the same thing that happens in arguments all the time. When angry words come along, it's easy to take a so what attitude and to hurt the other person with that so what. I've seen this happen over and over in people's arguments. Um, They could be accused of something falsely. Their reaction of anger wants to hurt the other person. And what better way to hurt the other person than to take a, well, I don't really care about the thing that you're angry about. 
okay, that's immediately you're thinking, okay, that's the thing that's going to wound them the most. And so you're implicitly saying, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't really care about that. It's weird, but I've seen it too many times. People will implicitly admit to what is being accused of out of anger and in order to punish, and it simply is not helpful. And this explains, I think, in part, why the northerners who had sided with David earlier are now angry and they leave him as well. Suddenly, it's no longer an irritation about not waiting for them. It's blown into a huge north-south conspiracy. The third thing that went wrong is that they deny that the other side has any right to be angry. They say, why then are you angry over this matter? Well, it's not a good thing to say to a person who's angry. <laughs> you know, you've got no right to be angry. You see, if, if David's men had seen these guys running to catch up, flustered in their faces, they should have immediately tried to look past the emotion, try to understand what was going on. They maybe had no reason to be frustrated, or at least no good reason to be frustrated with David. But sometimes if the reaction is sympathy for the inconvenience caused, rather than defending yourself, an argument can be avoided. Fourth, they get defensive over the implication that they are being self-serving in this. Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? Now, you can understand why they want to defend themselves, but those who are experts in conflict management say that the best approach to harsh and unreasonable attacks upon your character and your person are to ignore those attacks and try to refocus the conversation onto the specific problems or the issues that have created this attack uh, against you. Let me give you an ordinary workday example. Jagoda Perich Anderson wrote, Some years ago I had a client who regularly criticized and attacked others' abilities and intelligence. One of my first assignments was to draft a presentation for him based upon a general list of bullet points. Lacking details, I knew the first attempt would not be right. Rather than focusing on specifics, he threw up his hands and told me the whole thing was crap and we'd have to start all over. When he paused, I asked him to look at the PowerPoint slides with me and began to reorder them into the sequence that made more sense to him, checking for his concurrence along the way. We then looked at the content of a few specific slides and made changes to those. He left that meeting satisfied. I left that meeting relieved and with more insights on how to work with him in the future. Don't get me wrong, I didn't enjoy being harangued and was glad when that assignment ended. However, by not losing my cool or just giving in to him, I met several key goals. First, I kept the revision task relatively small and manageable. If she just responded and walked out, she'd have to start all over and it might have been just as much junk to him as it was before. So she said, I kept the revision tasks relatively small and manageable. Second, I earned his respect and retained a lucrative contract. Ah, money talks. This is about contracts. Third, I preserved my self-respect. Fourth, I leveraged my insights about him to create a working relationship that diminished his attacks during future projects. They were neither as numerous nor as vociferous as that first time. Now, the reason it is so successful to ignore the attacks uh, and try to sympathetically help the other person work through the issues is because, as Jagoda words it, personal attacks are rarely about you. You think they're about you because you're the one being yelled at. But 
really the problems reside in the other person. He's probably never learned proper communication uh, principles. He's learned bad habits of intimidation, exaggeration, and other attack modes. And if you're going to successfully solve the problem, you have to ignore the fact you are personally being attacked and try to focus the other person on the real problems. Now, I admit, <laughs> we don't like to do that because it just does not seem fair for me to have to sit by and be attacked unfairly in that way. But that's the cost, often, of being a peacemaker. You have to swallow pride, and pride is one of the most frequent reasons why reconciliation is obstructed. Now, some people have a hard time thinking straight when emotions set in. They don't know how to divert the conversation to the problem. So let me just give you a little bit of, if you were there, uh, some, some of the... Uh, ways that you could do this. I, let me, I'll just tell you a secret. I have a hard time knowing how to do it on the spur of the moment too. So if I know that I'm going into a conflict situation where I could really be hammered, I try to think through what are some, trans, what are some potential attacks that might come? What are some transition statements that would help me to help him focus upon the thing so I don't come out looking foolish by being defensive? And I would encourage you to write things down as well. A transition statement at the time of David might be something like, something like this. I'm so sorry that you guys feel hurt. Let's talk about what happened and see where we went wrong. And as you talk about what went wrong, it could become a little easier. You know, there may, be, may have been mistakes on both sides. David could have said, I'm sorry for not being specific. You know, I should have told you what time we were going to be leaving the Jordan. Or if there was a peacemaker on the other side, he could have said, you know, I'm really sorry for the frustrated outburst that we made. We just felt really, really bad that we missed uh, the, um, the party. So that'd be one transition statement. I'm so sorry that you guys feel hurt. Let's talk about what happened and see what went wrong. Here's another potential transition statement. Wow, I can see that this has been really frustrating for you. Let, let's sit down and see if we can figure this out. And then you can start by affirming your desire to include the other party, that you really were not trying to exclude them in any way, that here is the reasons we didn't wait. We thought providentially you were, you were hindered. Here's another possible transition statement. Wow, it looks like you have different information than we do. We want to hear your concerns. Maybe we were misinformed. So those those transition statements, we are transitioning away from being attacked to let's look at what the problem really is. That doesn't mean you can't still share fully your assumptions, your information, your motives, but it stops anger in two ways. First of all, it affirms your respect for the other person, your desire to hear from them, your desire to make amends, okay? Second, it's a soft answer. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Yes, they attacked you out of anger, but their ungodly anger shows, well, in response shows they needed to study conflict management ahead of time, probably deal with their own rats of rebellion and anger and pride before the crisis situation came up. Now that same verse shows how it is easy for regional differences or cultural differences to make us process information uh, very, very differently. It can make us assume things about the other person that may not be true. In fact, you know, in the first years of our marriage, I'll have to confess that there were times where I 
jump to conclusions about something Kathy had done or something that she had said and immediately went on the attack and started an argument. If I just asked a few clarifying questions, it would have, you know, at the end of the argument, say, well, why do we even start this argument if <laughs> that was the case, you know? So we can make faulty assumption that. Now, if two people as close as Kathy and I are, we've had very few arguments in our lives, but if two people as close as Kathy and I are can make faulty assumptions, or at least the husband can make faulty assumptions, we'll leave it at that, okay? <laughs> you know, when you're not close, it's going to be that much more easy to do so. Commentators say that these verses hint at long-standing tensions that had already existed between northern Israel and Judah. Verse 42. So all the men of Israel answered the men of excuse me, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Verse 43 starts, and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, "We have 10 shares in the king." Now the way that's worded is so intriguing because remember Half the army of Israel, northern Israel, was with David crossing the Jordan, but they're not the ones answering the latecomer northerners. No, it's just the men of Judah and the men of Israel. It's kind of a weird thing that happens there, and part of it is because there's natural gravitation to these cultural differences. Everybody agrees there were huge differences of culture and even the pronunciation of the language between northern Israel and uh, Judah, and those tensions eventually caused the nation to divide into those two parts under his grandson, Rehoboam. Similar differences can exist regionally in America. You can have different ways of looking at an issue between a man and a woman, or an engineer and an artist, you know? You, 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 there, there can be different approaches. I really struggled with this when I was uh, first working in China, and I had been assigned to read quite a number of books that show how the Chinese and Americans tend to look at life and communicate things quite, quite differently. Now, I'd grown up in Africa, so I'm already used to cultural differences, but I was absolutely blown away by these books on how different the Chinese culture and the American culture uh, were in terms of outlook and expectations and, and, and things like that. So, I'm studying these things, but even having studied them to avoid making cultural faux pas, I still made mistakes that I'm sure irritated some of the Chinese. They were way too polite to let me know. Uh, but it's very, very easy to happen, and the more pronounced those social differences, the more important it is to ask questions, to be patient, to be apologetic if you've uh, accidentally irritated somebody, learn communication skills, to talk through those stressful issues. Now, sadly, neither side seemed interested in doing that on this occasion. Now, look again at that phrase in verse 42. Because the king is a close relative of ours, why then are you angry over this matter? Now, the implication is they have the right to be closer to David and to spend more time with David than you do. We're related to him, okay, so get off our back is the idea. And in verse 43, the northerners are pitting their rights against the south's rights. They say, we have ten shares in the king, therefore we also have more right to David than you. The whole issue of looking at conflicts through the lens of my rights, my needs, my desires, hinders reconciliation rather than helping. As we have emphasized before, Mark chapter 10 calls us to quit looking at life simply in terms of my rights. 
and start looking at life in terms of my stewardship before God, my responsibilities to before God. How does God want me to relate to this person in this situation? Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be a rollover, but it does mean that pleasing God in a situation will be more important than getting my rights fulfilled. Now, the book His Needs, Her Needs by Harley, when looked at from the perspective of how can I please my spouse, does have some decent ideas, even though some of them are over the top, some of them are dead wrong, are absolutely humanistic. But when you look at that book, you read that book from the perspective of why is my spouse not fulfilling my needs? That book has created an absolute disaster. Absolute disaster. It has become a tool of manipulation. Americans are preoccupied with rights, and it makes them selfish and without a servant's heart. And a preoccupation with rights is an enormous obstacle to reconciliation. And if this is your problem, I have a one-page piece of homework that you can work through to crucify this whole approach to life and uh, to change your perspective. Okay, point H has already been dealt with to some degree, but being defensive rather than listening is the eighth problem. Do you have a listening heart or are you more preoccupied with convincing the other side of your viewpoint? Now, I'll be the first to admit it's so easy to make this mistake, you know, you act like you're listening to the other person, but you're thinking of what your next statement is going to be. Just ask my wife. She'll tell me I've fallen into this trap before. Uh, and, and it's not helpful. It's not helpful. Asking, clarifying, following up questions, trying to understand where the other person is coming through, writing it down, objectifying things, that's much more helpful. But if you're so intent on winning that you don't have a listening heart, you're going to be in trouble. Verse 42 ends with the southerner saying, have we ever eaten at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? Well, they weren't listening to the northerner's questions. They're not listening to their issues. That's not really an answer. They're not clarifying questions. The moment we go into defensive mode, we end up missing the opportunities to solve the problem. We're so focused on not being misrepresented that we miss the opportunities to tone things down and deal with the real issues that have come between us. Philippians 2 verse 4 says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, on the north's part, they felt despised. In verse 43, they complained, Why then do you despise us? Now, the south probably had no intention of despising the north. After all, they had half of the army with them uh, on the other side of the Jordan. But once they get angry, it did come out. It was the way they were talking that led the North to feeling despised. And this would have been a perfect opportunity to tell them, hey, no, we value you, we value your input, we do not despise you. But the escalation of words was beginning to get out of control. The latecomers knew that they were late to the meeting place, but they don't admit their own fault, okay? They fail to acknowledge they really don't have a basis for anger. Instead, they insist... Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? The whole argument is about who is right, trying to make ourselves look better than the other party. But if we are to be successful peacemakers, we have got to put off defensiveness, anger, accusation, inflammatory language, allowing hurt feelings to drive the discussion, or even giving in to those feelings. We want to get even. We've got to put those off. 
Arguments almost always degenerate into one-upmanship. The fierce words in verse 43 seem to be designed to score pain, not bring peace. It says, yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer, interesting word, were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And the result was predictable. It was breaking fellowship. So all it took is one person to take advantage of these harsh words and everything that David had worked at for weeks to try to achieve was completely blown apart. And there are too many Shebas in the church of Jesus Christ in the 20th century, actually probably in every century, who make matters worse in the way that they listen to offenses of others. They don't help people to process their pains biblically, they just inflame the pain. Now they're trying to be sympathetic, but in the process they are guilty of peace-breaking. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 2 again. And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri of Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now I want you to notice that every man from the north forsook David. That means even half the army that had been quite okay with David, had crossed the Jordan with David, they forsook David uh, as well. And that's the way rebellion, anger, and pride work. They infect others who might otherwise have been just fine. Children can be poisoned to a parent. Members of the church can take on an offense. So this is really a vivid, incredible example of the danger that can happen when we have anger unrestrained, rebellion untamed, and pride unchecked. I read a quip that Billy Sunday made one time. A lady was rationalizing to him about her angry outbursts, and she said, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper. I blow up, and then it's all over. So does a shotgun, Sunday replied, and look at the damage it leaves behind. You may think that your involvement in the obstacles that we have seen in this paragraph do not damage your family, your business, or your other relationships, but they do. So please, let the horrible consequences of chapter 20 sink into your soul. Let the horrible consequences of chapter 20 be a call for you all to be peacemakers. Since Christ died to reconcile all things to himself and to reconcile all things to each other, we must be diligent to put off all obstacles to his great work of reconciliation. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the illustrations of sin and the illustrations of righteousness that we find in it. We thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit quickens the scriptures to our hearts, and we desire to grow more and more in our adherence to your word. So we pray that uh, Satan would not snatch the seed that has been sown out of our hearts, but it would take root, that it would bring forth a fruit uh, to uh, your honor and to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.